0: Beloved. <laughs> if you have uh, been here for a while, you have likely heard me say the following recalibrating, level-set statement, that at San Dan Bible Church, our focus is on spiritual growth. Always was, always is right now, and always will be. Now, that's not to say that we're not interested in or blessed by numerical growth because numbers mean souls represent a ministry. We're excited by that good work, but our focus was, is, and always will be on spiritual growth. And that is precisely, amen, that is precisely the heart of the author, pastor, expositor, preacher of the epistle of Hebrews in our section this morning. Our passage this morning our verses 5 Chapter 5, 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. Please open your Bibles there. As this author is writing to this beloved Jewish, ethnically Jewish, Christian congregation, the author has a heart towards their growth. Even as uh, young Michael was praying earlier that God has made us alive so that we now are able to move. We don't just stay stunted in our growth. It is time to pick up, to grow up, and to move Forward, Beloved, listen as I read Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, Of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. Beloved, this is the Word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, Beloved, just a simple two-fold outline to help us understand where the author is going in this text is in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 5, we see the problem of perpetual infancy. And then in chapter 5, verse 14 through chapter 6, verse 3, we see the promise of persistent maturity. And we'll spend most of our time in the four verses of chapter Five. And the intent, what is on the heart of this author, pastor, for his congregation, what is God's intent for you and for me some 2,000 years later as we would study this and understand this is simply, it is time to grow. Chin up, chest out, back straight, spiritually speaking. So, first, let's look at the problem of perpetual infancy, which is what was the situation with the church. And this is the third warning passage in this letter, where basically the author interrupts his train of thought to deal with a situation, an issue, a sin problem that was at the church. And the spiritual problem that we encounter here is much deeper than mere ignorance. Ignorance. But he begins, look there at the beginning of verse 11, he says, concerning him, we have much to say. Him, the nearest antecedent, we go back to verse 10, would be Melchizedek, where we understand that the author has been elevating Christ as the high priest, the final high priest, the perfect high priest. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, he is, we understand, our sympathetic suffering savior by virtue of his ministry as high priest. And then in the first four verses here of chapter 5, the author goes back and he rehearses and reminds this Jewish audience and us of the qualifications of the inferior old covenant high priest. And then in chapter 5, verse 10, he circles back to the superior new covenant high priest, the man Jesus Christ, who ministers according to the order of Melchizedek. And the author has on his heart, he wants to tell them, I want to tell you about Melchizedek, is what he says to the audience, but you're not ready. And so what we have in verse 11 through the end of chapter 6, verse 20, is a purposeful pause. Again, it is the third warning message that we encounter here in the text. And one of the things that we understand and know from this is the pastor knows his audience. He knows that he needs to interrupt his teaching about Jesus because of their current situation. So he speaks to this group both personally, pastorally, and in a sense even paternally as a father in the faith. So he he says concerning him, Melchizedek, under the umbrella of Christ, we have much to say But he continues on, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Become dull of hearing. The word dull, lazy, slow to understand. This Greek word only appears twice in the New Testament here, and then in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, where the author translates it as sluggish. They are sluggish, lazy of hearing. Uh, One ancient extra-biblical writer used this word to describe the numbed limbs of a diseased lion. But notice what he says here. He doesn't say you are dull of hearing. He says you have become dull of hearing. The implication is there was a time when this congregation was not dull of hearing. Their condition, their disease of dullness of hearing is an acquired one. Beloved, understand this no christian man no christian woman was ever dull of hearing at their conversion when god made you a new creature in christ jesus when the holy spirit indwelled you when god took out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh at that moment in time you were not dull of hearing so again this is an acquired state it's a threat that every believer on this side of eternity on the side of glory, needs to guard against and watch. Also, I think it is clear, we understand this is not a physical issue. It's not a physical disease. He's not talking about the acoustic waves traveling down the ear channel and vibrating the eardrum and then the synapses firing going off to the brain or anything like that. It is a spiritual condition. In fact, we should understand that some of the best hearers of the Word of God Are our deaf brothers and sisters in Christ? Some of the best seers of the light of the revelation of the truth of Scripture are our blind brothers and sisters. So it is not a physical situation. But the author expands on this point in verse 12. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be teachers. There's an obligation there, there's a necessity. He's not talking about it, that's a, a mere nice to have. You ought to be teachers. Now, also understand this is he's not here talking about just pastors, elders, deacons, Titus II women, Sunday school Bible hour class teachers. He's speaking to the entire congregation. Now, Someone might say, well, I don't have the, the gift of teaching. I'm not, I, I see what God tells us in 1 Timothy and Titus that a qualification, a sine qua non, a necessary qualification for an elder is he must be apt to teach and able to reprove and rebuke in sound doctrine. But what he's talking about here, the author of Hebrews is talking about here, is he's not just addressing one who has a formal office. It's for the entire church because the point here is this. Every Christian man or woman has a teaching responsibility to come alongside and be used by God to come alongside a less mature believer, to bring the word of God to bear in fellowship, in discipleship, in encouragement we can think of it this way. We could think of the gift of mercy in 1 Corinthians. And one might say, well, I don't have the gift of mercy, therefore I don't need to be merciful. I mean, that's silly. (laughs) We understand that. But in the same way, the gift of teaching is a little bit different, but it's the same dynamic. All of us have a responsibility. That's why, for example, the Apostle Peter in 1st Peter 3 15 a famous verse you may know first sanctify Christ in your hearts Always being ready to give an answer and a defense for the hope that lies within God says through Peter to the churches in Asia Minor all the Christian men and women that we are to Always be ready to give an answer and a defense for the hope that lies within so The author here in Hebrews is speaking to all of us. Now, having said that, we should know that those of us who have the blessed burden to have an official teaching ministry do have a deep understanding of what is at stake here. Namely, we understand that if we have to teach, we better understand what it is we're going to teach. I can't just suck something out of my thumb on Sunday morning and hope that God will speak and give me a word. Study is required. And in fact, all of us are commanded to study and show ourselves approved as an approved workman or workwoman handling accurately the word of God. And there is no learning experience like the necessity of teaching whether it's from a pulpit, in a Bible hour class, in a women's ministry, a mother with her children, uh, you evangelizing one of your coworkers or students, that is one of the best ways in which God grows us in our own learning. We also understand back here in the context of what the author of Hebrews is bringing to bear is before we can handle the upper level courses, we must master the entry level courses classes and these people these hebrew he, me hebrew christians should be teaching others less mature but look at the rest of verse 12 but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of god the elementary principles these are the abcs of the oracles of god the ABCs of the Bible, both to be sure the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, what we have as the Old Testament, all Christians need to understand that, and certainly the Jewish Christians here, and also the basic gospel principles of the New Covenant, of the New Testament, and they have need again. In fact, the word again that you see there has bite to it. So the point he's bringing out is that this congregation is not merely not advancing. They've actually lost ground. They are, in a sense, in the context, backwards remedial pupils by virtue of their behavior, by virtue of their neglect, by virtue to the dullness of their hearing, which is the indifference of their heart. What he's saying, in a sense, is by this time you should be teaching calculus or differential equations, but you again need to be taught that two plus two equals four. That is the point, but he's speaking spiritually here, of course. And he continues on, and he kind of extends or expands out to a different illustration. He says, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So what he's bringing out here is this dynamic of childishness. Now, childishness is beautiful and attractive and endearing in a 22-month-old. Sorry, I look at my son and daughter-in-law because my beautiful 22-year-old niece, she's childish because she's 22 months old. And I love babies, and that's wonderful, and that's beautiful. But childishness is not attractive and endearing in a 13-year-old, much less an 18-year-old, even much less in a 50-year-old. But that was the situation here, spiritually speaking. And by the way, this is the same kind of analogy the Apostle Paul used when he rebuked the immature church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2, Paul told the church, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. So the Apostle Paul uses the same milk-solid food analogy as a loving rebuke to the church as the author of Hebrews does here. But now look at verse 13 as the author continues. As he continues to expand this problem, this disease of dullness of hearing and this problem of perpetual infancy, verse 13 for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness not accustomed to he's that basically describes being completely inexperienced unskilled immature the, the word means that basically they they have no experience with something so of course they're immature if if someone told me to you know paint a, i don't know to do to Coming up, I'm coming up with a loss of an illustration here. To build a chair. If somebody said build a chair, I am completely unskilled. I'm completely inexperienced. I have no capability, no background to do it. But what he's saying here is that is how they're handling the word of God. They're immature because of their utter lack of attention. This doesn't mean that they were untaught. This doesn't mean that they had not heard. It was sadly falling on deaf ears, practically speaking. And by the way, he continues, and he says, for he is a babe. So he continues this infant-like illustration of milk and solid food. And this word babe, Paul used the same word babe when he was giving his loving rebuke again to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. The New American Standard translates the same word here as child. Really, it would be young child. And Paul says, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. That's the goal. On Ephesians 4 verse 14, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus there, we are no longer to be children. Same word. Why, Paul? We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by ways and carried about by every wind and doctrine. So, Back here in Hebrews, they're acting like young children. They're acting like babies. They have come to need milk, not solid food. And Alistair Begg, I loved it. He had a beautiful illustration to draw out what this looks like. He, in essence, said, imagine going to to a restaurant in a big city. And you go walking in, and you look around, and you realize that everyone there is not eating anything. Everyone there is only drinking milk. Men in suits and ties, ladies in dresses, teenagers, all of them drinking milk. And to compound things, to make it even worse, they're drinking them all out of big baby bottles. What he says is, you'd conclude there's something severely wrong with this group. Or maybe they're part of some strange milk-drinking society or something like that. But it just ain't what it should be. And for the English teacher, I apologize for my uh, ain't there. But something is wrong is what the author brings here. Martin Lloyd-Jones described this kind of situation for a Christian. And this is what he said, what the doctor said, quote, I know of nothing more tragic than to see Christian people who remain exactly where and what they always were. They end as they began as children. They thought they had everything at the beginning, and so they never grow. They remain spiritual children their entire life. And, beloved, dear friend, if we had our children, and we love them when they're 22 months or when they're four or they're six, but if there is never any advancement, never any physical growth, never any emotional growth, never any mental growth, we would understand something is tragically wrong. Well, even more grave is the spiritual dimension here. And I would say this. The sad reality is that in the Western church, we live in an age of rampant spiritual infancy. Uh, One person said the Western church is a thousand miles wide and one millimeter deep because of this pastors it's a vicious cycle between pastor and congregation because of this dynamic many pastors feel they have to be dramatic and creative to force feed all the suckling infants in their congregation and this is not something that's new under the sun this was a problem even in the old testament god told the nation of israel through the prophet hosea in hosea 4:9 like people like priests Uh, Paul tells Timothy that in the end times, people will accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own desires, desiring their ears to be tickled. So it is a vicious cycle. But back here in the text, as we seek to understand this analogy the author is using, understand this, the problem is not with the milk. There's nothing inadequate. There's nothing wrong or lacking with the milk. That's why Peter, for example, Peter also used this illustration of milk, but with a different nuance. He used it in a positive standpoint. In First Peter two two, Peter said, "Be like newborn babes and what long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation." So the contrast here between milk and meat is not that they're mutually exclusive. They go together. Both are good and both are right. And in fact, there's a natural advancement from milk to meat. Milk is nutritional. Milk builds bones. Milk helps a child grow strong. So, the problem is not with the milk. Also, when we think of the audience, the problem is not a matter of intellect or education. The problem is not even that the group is untaught, it's that they are unlearned. Do you get the distinction? It's not that they're untaught, it's that they're unlearned. They have heard the Word of God. They are even perhaps hearing the Word of God, but because of the dullness of their hearing, The truth of Scripture has become like white noise in their ears and in their mind. They are suffering from what the Puritan Bunyan wrote is a forgetfulness of God, which this forgetfulness of God causes a forgetfulness that one day we're going to meet him. And so they become lazy. And because they become lazy, they are ignorant. Laziness and ignorance, beloved, sleep in the same bed. In other words, if you encounter a lazy Christian, you will have met an ignorant Christian. If you meet an ignorant Christian, you have met a lazy Christian. And when I say ignorant, again, we're not talking education, we're not talking intellect. There are many ignorant PhDs, even PhDs in theology, so that is not the point. And this ignorance is of the true import and weight and application and binding nature of the Word of God. And it's a moral problem. It's not, again, an intellectual problem or an educational problem. A great historical illustration, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Spurgeon said that one person that most impacted him, especially in his formative teenage years, was an uneducated kitchen maid named Mary. When... Spurgeon enrolled at the Newmarket Academy in Cambridge in the year 1849. He spent two years there, and this uneducated kitchen maid named Mary had a great input into his life in terms of theology. In his autobiography, the Prince of Preachers Spurgeon wrote this, quote, "...she was a good old soul, and liked something very sweet indeed, good, strong Calvinist doctrine." Many, Which, by the way, I don't normally say Calvinist up here, except when I'm quoting something. Just to avoid labels lest people misunderstand things. We do absolutely believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, but I'm digressing. Let's come back. Spurgeon continues. Many a time we've talked of the personal election of the saints, their union to Christ, their final perseverance, and what vital godliness meant. Spurgeon finishes, I believed I learned more from her than I could have learned from any six doctors of divinity, especially of the sort we have nowadays, end quote. So, beloved, the problem's not with the milk. The problem's not a matter of intellect. Again, there are PhDs who choke on food, on solid food, one millimeter above the milk. And On the positive side, there are uneducated saints who drink and eat the richest and deepest truths of Scripture with pleasure and with profit. That is the Word of God and the child of God empowered by the Spirit of God. And the author comes here speaking personally, pastorally, and paternally to this group. It's like the father of the 10-year-old, who the 10-year-old said, Dad, I I can't do my chores. I have a tummy ache. And the wise father said, Son, you're 10 years old. 10-year-olds don't have tummies. You have a stomach. You see, that's why God gives us a father to tell us it's time to grow up, to help us understand, spiritually speaking, that sitting around in diapers waiting for somebody to spoon feed us to the next level of spiritual maturity won't do the job. Also, As the leadership of Santan Bible Church, by virtue of this, we don't teach certainly according to the prejudice of a closed mind, nor do we teach according to the laziness of a sluggish mind. And, beloved, we grow from infancy to maturity through the ministry of the Word. We show up, eat up, shape up, and step up. And when we do this, we will all grow up individually and corporately. So, that was the problem of perpetual infancy. We move now to the second element, which is the promise of persistent maturity. It is, again, time to grow, to move from the helplessness of infancy to the healthiness of maturity. And what we see in chapter 5, 14 through 6, 3 is the practice, progress, and providence of spiritual maturity first in verse 14 the practice of spiritual maturity and what the author brings out here is a physical observation with a heavenly meaning in the celebration of life service of Jim Waldsmith yesterday three of us went to and sharing and me and the brief message I had went to a parable in Matthew 20, the 11th hour parable. And we understand that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, something in the same way here, the author brings out the element that we all understand, any parent would understand, is that namely solid food is only palatable, chewable, and digestible by the mature. In other words, it would be pointless to put a wonderful steak dinner in front of a baby. They couldn't do anything with it. That's why, look at verse 14. The author says, but solid food is for the mature. The mature, the teleos, the complete, the perfect. This maturity that we see here is the goal of every Christian, every Christian man, every Christian woman. It's the same goal Paul brings out to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Or the theme verse of our Santan Bible Church men's ministry, Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may, what? Present every man complete, mature, perfect in Christ. Now, Back here, continuing this illustration, this analogy the author of Hebrews has here, we should understand that there is no spiritual IV feeding tube shortcut shortcut option to this. We have to eat the food, chew the food, and digest the food. And what's interesting here is the remedy the author prescribes here is not first and foremost to just jump from milk to meat. To be sure, we've already seen That one who only partakes of milk and not solid food is not accustomed to teaching of righteousness. But the thrust here, the main remedy, the main question is what do you do with the milk? What do you do with the milk of the promise of the word of God? You see, it is certainly possible to know without growing. I already mentioned a PhD in theology that may have a tremendous head knowledge, but there's no growth. Having said that, it is impossible, it's not possible to grow without knowing. So, yes, we need the meat, but we need the milk. We need the milk. And, beloved, those who love God and those who love His Word are stirred by its truth all over again, where faith is nurtured and fruit is born in the life of the child, the daughter of God, the Son of God. That's why... Paul wrote again to the church in Corinth, chapter 14, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 14, 20. He says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature, be complete, be perfect. That is the goal. Still, verse 14, chapter four, five, excuse me, solid food is for the mature, end of verse 14, who, watch this, because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. This, beloved, is the practice of spiritual maturity. Trained to discern good and evil. Beloved, the power to distinguish between good and evil has been sought all the way back to the Garden of Eden since Adam and Eve. And what the author says here is, for the child of God with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Step one is drink it. Step two, digest it. Step three, discern between good and evil. And the kind of discernment that he's talking about here is what you do naturally when the milk of God's promise is so savored and so satisfying that it gives you the mind of Christ. We have, if you have a Bible in your lap, you have the mind of Christ in your hands on your lap but that's just a physical dimension what he's saying here is when the milk of the promise which is contained in this word is so savored by you and so satisfying to you it won't just be something in your hands it will be in your heart so that on the spot when faced with life's challenges disappointments decisions you will be able to discern between good and evil that is the point point. and how do we get there I mean, you know, it sounds like using a sporting metaphor. It's like you're you're talking some advanced, you know, move, you know, whatever the case. How do we get there? Well, what it says is because of practice, have their senses trained. The word practice literally describes a well-conditioned body or mind obtained through exercise. Exercise of the muscles or exercise of the mind through repetition again and again. Have their senses trained. Gum we get the English word gymnasium from the Greek word gymnadzo, which is translated here as trained. It's the same word the Apostle Paul used in 1 Timothy 4, 7, where he says, discipline yourself, train yourself, gumnazo yourself for the purpose of godliness. So going from the physical world of athletics which is what both the author of Hebrews and Paul are appealing to with the use of this word we understand that this kind of discipline this kind of training is the opposite of superficiality and the overindulgence of an undisciplined world certainly even more so in the spiritual domain and beloved we should understand at the heart of this kind of spiritual training at the heart of this discipline is denial of self and control of self This is really in the same thread as when our Lord Jesus defined discipleship. And remember he said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow after me. It's the same thought that came from the lips of Jesus as comes now from the pen of the author of Hebrews. Discipline, training requires sacrifice. Also, An undisciplined Christian, understand this, an undisciplined Christian is a weak Christian and a vulnerable Christian. That's the danger. R. Kent Hughes, in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, had these choice words. He said, in Christ, spiritual discipline frees us from the gravity of this present age and allows us to soar with the saints and angels. Here in Ephesians, the remedy for the dullness of hearing that we saw back in verse 11 is to drink the milk of God's promise with delight until the desires of our heart are transformed to the discernment of good and evil. When we replace apathy and laziness with rigor and d- discipline, then we are prepared to eat and to chew and to digest the meat. Also, the opposite of that dullness of hearing is also diligence. I mentioned that the only other appearance of that word dull is in Hebrews 6:12. You can turn to chapter 6 for a moment or listen as I read verses 11 and 12 where we see an opposite coming out to help us understand the dynamic here. Chapter 6, verse 11, the author writes, We desire each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, may not be dull, lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So that is the contrast between dullness and the remedy of diligence. So that's the practice of spiritual ministry. Secondly, we see the progress of spiritual ministry in verses 1 and 2. What the author does here is the author looks both backwards and he says there's something to leave and there's something to move on towards he says stop laying again the foundation start building on the foundation if there's a foundation laid we don't camp on it we build upon it and that's why he says look at verse 1 of chapter 6 therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ let us press on to maturity pause there for a moment In the four verses of chapter five, four times he said, you, 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 you. Now, this pastoral author groups himself together with this milk-suckling congregation. He puts himself at the same level. I thank God that I have a mature congregation that keeps my feet to the fire. But whether you have a a mature congregation or a less mature congregation, we're all in this together. Press on to maturity. That's actually, by the way, the sermon title this morning, Press On to Maturity. Press on, carry, bring, drive along, guide, lead into, bring about, sustain, endure. This word translated here with the thrust of a command was used in chapter 1, verse 3. Remember when the author opened up this great epistle with the absolute supremacy of the Son. And in chapter 1, verse 3, we are told that the Son upholds all things by the word of His power. And that same word, uphold, is what's translated here again with a thrust of a command. Press on to maturity. And what we are told to do in the rest of verse 1 and 2 is first to leave six elementary teachings about Christ. Six elementary teachings in three sets of two. And these are all cast against the backdrop of the original audience as Jewish believers. Repentance and faith, washings and laying on of hands, and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And what he's saying here, when he says leave these elementary teachings, he doesn't mean neglect them. He doesn't mean walk away from them. Doesn't mean, he doesn't mean deny them. These are absolutely essential when understood correctly. But what he's saying is this is not the end. This is where you start as believers, as a babe in Christ. Now grow up, mature, and move on. And the first two are functional, or excuse me, foundational. The latter four are instructional. He says, Look at the middle of verse 1, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith towards God. So this Jewish audience repentance and turning away from their previous understanding of a work salvation that they had to try to work to earn their way to heaven, absolutely they must repent, turn away from that, but don't just stay there, move on. We know That we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is not alone. And a faith towards God. Don't think of these as the end goal. These are the beginning, beloved, of our spiritual progress. The road to hell is paved, it's been said, with good intentions. The road to hell is also paved with good works. And in something of the same way that in James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. It's not a saving faith. Here in Hebrews 6, works without faith are dead works. That's part of the dynamic. That's part of the foundational. And there's always a ever-present temptation to earn one's salvation. And as we go on to verse 2, Sorry about that. <laughs> Go to verse 2. The next pair is of instruction about washings and laying on of hands. And this has parallels in both Judaism and Christianity. So again, this is the second pair out of the six, washings and laying on of hands. Again, there are washings and laying on of hands certainly in both Old Covenant Judaism. There's baptism in New Covenant Christianity. There's laying on of hands in both. And what he's saying is, don't get caught up in that. You have the foundation of your salvation of repentance and faith. Now you have sanctification, but don't just leave there. Have a right understanding of it. And then finally, at the end of verse 2, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So he starts with the beginning. He goes through the middle and then goes all the way to the end. And absolutely, the resurrection of the dead the resurrection of both the living in christ unto eternal life and the resurrection of the unsaved who are still dead in their trespasses and sin unto eternal condemnation are an essential part of biblical christianity but don't just stay there and by the way when he talks about eternal judgment we might hear the word judgment and instantly think just of the judgment of the unsaved But we know there's eternal judgment of both the saved and the unsaved. The eternal judgment of the saved is a judgment unto praise. According to 1 Corinthians 13, the judgment of the unsaved is an eternal judgment unto damnation and condemnation. That's why, for example, Peter in 1 Peter 1 verses 4 and 5 said, They shall give an account to him, Christ, who is ready to judge the living and the dead who's ready to judge the saved and the unsaved, the believers and the unbelievers. But the author's press on to maturity is the main point here, the main thrust here. It's the same idea as the apostle Paul had in Philippians 3.13 under the umbrella of the progress of spiritual maturity. In Philippians three verse thirteen, Paul wrote, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Like a hunter that's hungry for his meal. Like a marathon racer reaching for the tape line. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, the man who runs in a race must not be interested in the landscape. If he begins to look at the mountains and the charm of the flowers, he won't win the race. He must be intent on one thing only. Beloved, press on to maturity the practice of spiritual maturity the progress of spiritual maturity finally and briefly the providence of spiritual maturity and i say briefly because the author is brief and what he's doing here in verse 3 is after six verses of human responsibility he wraps up with the verse of divine sovereignty look at verse 3 and this we shall do if god permits The point is, only God can change the course of a man's life. Only God can change the course of a woman's life. Our lives, beloved, are in the Lord's hand. And this is how he wraps up, but actually, even back in verse 1, when he gave that kind of central command, press on to maturity, there's even a nuance there of God's sovereignty. Press on to maturity, the verb press on, is actually in the passive voice. Literally, let us be carried forward to maturity. The focus, even in this thrust command of press on to maturity, is not in the grammar on our personal effort, but rather on our personal surrender, to the sovereign creator God of the universe. Again, human responsibility to be sure and divine sovereignty. We can neither presume nor assume we have dependence upon God. And beloved, I'll finish our time here before we do our final song and then enjoy the baptisms with a quote from Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India. You may remember some of the stories about her. When she was a little girl, she desperately wanted to have blue eyes instead of brown eyes. She even prayed to God that he would change the color of her eyes. Later on, she rejoiced and thanked God because she realized if she had had blue eyes instead of brown eyes, she wouldn't have had as an effective ministry to the dear souls in India. She ministered in India for 55 years without a furlough. And this is what Amy Carmichael said, quote, to the Lord. Give me, Lord, the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that burns like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Beloved, Press on to maturity. Let us grow up together individually and corporately for the glory of God, for our blessing, and for our ministry to a lost and dying world. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you, Lord, for making us new creatures to understand this. Lord, we mourn over our residual sin, but we praise you and thank you Lord God, that by your grace, by your mercy, we can put the deeds of the flesh to death. We can grow in the grace and knowledge. Lord, help us always to watch out for and identify any disease of dullness of ears that seep into us. Let us excel yet more for your glory, for your mercy. Thank you for Elizabeth and for Kai, for the upcoming testimonies. Thank you for the great work you're doing here, Lord. It is for your glory and for your honor that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.